Bridgeway Community Church. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. The genius of Jesus. It's wonderful to be reminded that he is able and that he can do whatever it is we ask him to do, oftentimes immeasurably beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Well, today, if you're just joining us, you're right in the middle of a winter guest speaker series. It's been such a wonderful opportunity for us to have amazing speakers from around the world. And every year at this time, I bring in friends that I believe can impart into you something that will help you become mature and mighty in Christ, which is our theme this year. Next week, Israel Houghton and Adrian Bailon Houghton will be right here on the stage with me. Make sure you're engaged next week as well. But today, we are blessed to have Erwin McManus. Erwin is a friend of mine. We've known each other for so many years. We just don't have a lot of opportunities to sort of play together. So whenever we get a chance to intersect our lives, we are just so very grateful that we have the opportunity to do it. And today, he gets to hang out with you, Bridgeway. Let me tell you just a little bit about Pastor Erwin before I have him come up here. He's not only the pastor and founder of Mosaic, which is a church movement based in the heart of Hollywood with a community of thousands of people that span the globe. He's also an educated man. His education really comes from life experience, but he also has academics as well. He studied philosophy at Elon University, a bachelor's of arts in psychology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, a master of divinity from South Western Theological Seminary and a Doctorate of Humane Letters from Southeastern University. He's an author of many books, many of which some of you have read. He's an author of 11 different books, including The Way of the Warrior, The Last Arrow, and most recently, The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changes Everything. Make sure you pick this up wherever books are sold. He also lives in LA with his wife, Kim. He has two adult children, and I'm really, really excited about him as, a, as an innovator, an entrepreneur, a fashion designer, a filmmaker, but most of all, a friend of Bridgeway Community Church, a gracist, and a brother in the Lord. So let's welcome up right now, Pastor Erwin McManus. I introduce to some and present to others, our brother from another mother. Come on up here, Erwin McManus. What a joy to be here with you guys today. I am so excited about being here today. Dr. Anderson, you are not only brilliant, but you just have a lot of swagger, too. You're just very, very cool. We had a great time. We have a common heart. We love meat. And uh, I, I live in L.A., but I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan. But I always explain to all my vegetarian friends, the cattle I eat are vegetarians. So I'm just one step removed from, from them, and so it's really okay. You know, when I, um, when I began thinking about genius, and it really wasn't about thinking about Jesus. I began studying genius over 40 years ago, and I spent my life really trying to understand human potential, human capacity, understand what it is that makes humans different than every other species. And, and it was really more incidental that I slowly began to realize that every list of geniuses I'd ever seen omitted Jesus. And, and even for myself, if you asked me who my most 
aspirational geniuses were, I would always say Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci was sort of the classic historic genius. And, and on those lists, there'd be da Vinci and Mozart and, and Einstein and, and maybe Picasso. And, and they would expand. And I've even seen lists that had Buddha on the list and Muhammad on the list. And, and even one list that talked about Paul being a genius. But I never saw a single list that had Jesus. And so it, it sort of began to intrigue me. And I, I was sitting one day in my, in my back house uh, just contemplating this sort of peculiar dilemma. Was Jesus of Nazareth a genius? I, I mean, I believe that he is God, but I wasn't sure if he was a genius, if he qualified as a historic genius. And so I just began to, to dissect all the divinity, and, and I put it in a category and said, everything that's miraculous, everything that's magical, everything that's supernatural in that sense, I'm going to put into this category. And I'm going to look at Jesus as a human being. And, and I'm more of a cultural anthropologist. I really try to understand who we are as human beings. And what I thought was fascinating was that it was very hard to identify whether Jesus was a genius and what his genius was. But more than that, it was a curiosity to me how someone could be the greatest genius who ever lived and be so overlooked for all of this time. And so one of the basic questions I asked was, well, not just... Was Jesus a genius? But does that genius have an effect on us? I didn't grow up in faith. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up really a religious person at all. And so a lot of the, the teachings of the scriptures and, and the conversations we would have about God and about Jesus and who we are as human beings from the scriptures, that was all new to me. And I, it, it seemed to me that a lot of our emphasis was moving from being a bad person to being a good person. That's what Jesus did for us. He, he moves us from being bad people to being good people. But, but frankly, after 40 years of being a follower of Christ, I didn't think that was really the dilemma. I, I just kept wondering to myself, does Jesus do more than just move us from bad to good? Can he move us from stupid to smart? Because a, a lot of my friends, it's not that they're bad, they're just so Stupid. They just keep making the same stupid mistakes over and over and over again. In fact, I look back on my life and I thought, that wasn't because I lacked intelligence or because I didn't want to do the right thing. Sometimes I just made the dumbest decisions in the world. And one of the things I've gotten to do over my lifetime is work with a lot of people who have extraordinary success. They, um, I work with a group of people where every single person's company has to minimally make $100 million a year. And I began to realize that the dumbest decisions we ever make do not cost us money, they cost us people. And that the, the losses, the, those, those traumatic moments in our life, they're, they're usually not about external circumstances that we have no control over. The things that really devastate us are, are how we destroy each other in relationship to one another because of the incredibly dumb choices we make in life. So I started wondering... Does Jesus' genius have any effect on us at all? Because one of the beautiful things about genius is that it's inspirational. When you see the genius of Stephen Hawking or the, 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 the genius of, of, of Picasso or the genius of Michelangelo, it's really inspiring. But the problem, of course, is that you can spend your entire life with Mozart and never learn how to compose. You can spend your entire life with Picasso and never become a painter. You can spend your entire life with Bobby Fischer and never learn how to become a master in chess. And so the frustrating thing about genius is it's not transferable. Except, of course, when it comes to Jesus. This is where I just felt arrested in a moment of, 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 of just awakening to realize that not only does Jesus have an identifiable genius, but that the genius of Jesus 
is completely transferable. And this is why we need to understand it. I just want to read a, a few passages this morning. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's that word mind that I think is really important. Because after all, if you're going to have transferable genius, it has to go from mind to mind. It says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But th this theme continues, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. So elevate your mind. Elevate your thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says this. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him. In other words, who can get into God's head? Who can understand God's mind? How are we supposed to think like God? How are we supposed to make decisions like God? In fact, you can't really live your life and reflect God if you can't even think like God. But then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. I mean, think of the implications of this. Jesus, the greatest genius who ever lived, has a genius that is transferable and it's offered to us in relationship to him, then we can have the mind of Christ. But really, isn't, well, the idea that we could be geniuses a little too much to put on us? I was having a conversation in a, a particular event, and in that room was the man with the highest recorded IQ in the world. And Walter and I have developed this you know, acquaintance, and and I remember we were, um, I was having lunch and all of a sudden Walter came and sat next to me. And he's, I think, from Scotland and, he, and he, there's an entire television series that was built around his life because of his immense intellect. And he came and sat next to me and he said, I've been told that a conversation between us was inevitable. And I just had goosebumps in that moment. Here's the man with the highest IQ in the world sitting next to me telling me I'm inevitable. And I did feel sort of, unarmed. Here's a man with an incredible intellect and, you know, I'm just sort of working with what I've got. And, and he said, I want to be clear. I listened to your presentation and I want you to know that I disagree with half of what you said. And I said, oh, thank you. And he goes, yes, all I have to do is show you the facts. The facts are against you. Because you see, I, I submitted a possibility that genius is not as rare as we think. I submitted a possibility. That, in fact, all human beings carry within them the essence of genius. And that, that genius is lost as we, quote, mature in life. But that in our infancy, there is genius placed within us that is reflective of the image of God. Of course, Walter's an atheist, and he believed that genius is very rare, and he believed he's one of those rare geniuses, which he is. It's not a question whether he's a genius. The question is whether it's as rare as we think. When I left that conversation, I left so encouraged. Because Walter O'Brien, the man with the highest IQ in the world, said to me, I disagree with half of what you said. Which, of course, means he agrees with half of it. And so I felt like I've made huge progress. And, and then he said, and I can just show you the facts, because the facts are against you. And, and I had to reflect on that a little longer, because he was right. All the facts are against me. In fact, every great innovation, every great discovery... Every great leap into the future of understanding, every great technology, every great invention, all the facts were against them. 
See, the facts are against me, and I'm just going to tell you this up front, but the future is for me. I want you to realize that the facts are against me. The facts say that there is no genius in you. In fact, the facts say that only 2% of humans carry the, the characteristics of genius, and the rest of us, 98%, are simply supposed to admire the genius within them. But there was a man named George Land who was hired by NASA to identify scientists and engineers who had genius in them so they could hire them for the space program. And George Lyon put together a creativity assessment. It was actually a genius test. And that genius test was the filter that they were going to use to identify those individuals in that 2% of genius. Well, they gave this assessment to five-year-olds and found that 98% of five-year-olds actually tested out as geniuses. They did a longitudinal study, and they followed those five-year-olds until they were 10. At the age of 10, they gave them the same assessment. And not 98% of them, but 30% of them still tested out as geniuses. They followed them another five years, so they were 15 years old. And it wasn't 98% of them, and it wasn't 30% of them. It was 12% of them that still tested out as geniuses. Later, they gave that same assessment to around 280,000 adults, average age 31, and only 2% of adults tested out as geniuses. So what it tells us is that genius isn't something that's rare, it's something that's fragile. That genius actually exists inside of all of us. The question is not whether you were born with genius, the question is, did you lose it? Was it nurtured, developed, awakened, and unleashed as a gift to the world. Well, when I travel the world, it's kind of interesting because in most places in the world, people speak multiple languages, except in the United States. We speak English and that's about it. In fact, there's an old joke, you have trilingual, bilingual, and American. And, and when I travel across the United States and I ask people, how many of you are good at languages? Almost no one in the room will raise their hand. But I kind of add pressure. Say, so how many would say that you are creative geniuses? My, my research across the world is less than 1% of people will identify themselves as creative geniuses. Then I have a follow-up question, which I'd like to ask you. How many of you would consider yourselves to be linguistic savants? Now, if you're not sure what savant means, go ahead and say no. But how many of us would say we're linguistic savants, that we have a natural gifting, a genius for language? I was born in San Salvador, El Salvador. My first language was Spanish. I came to the United States when I was a young boy. I learned English when I was maybe five years old. And so I became bilingual right away. Is it because I was smarter than other people or simply because I was moved into different environments? See, what I find is that most people think they have no language capacity, but you did not learn English when you were in college. You didn't learn English in high school or junior high. You didn't even struggle to learn, learn, to learn English. English is one of the most difficult languages in the world, and you learned English when you were two. And if they had moved you to Tokyo, you would have learned Japanese at two. Or to Rio de Janeiro, you would have spoken Portuguese at the age of two. You could have moved to Manila and you would have spoken Tagalog at the age of two. Or moved you to London and you finally actually spoke English properly at the age of two. Because when you were born, you were a linguistic savant and you were a creative genius. Because there was a creative essence of genius Within you, 
And the tragedy is that most likely by the time you were five, all those characteristics that were so clearly you were lost at the age of 12. 98% of us live our lives as if there is no genius within us. And that is a tragedy. I think we've overfocused on what Jesus does to move us from being bad to being good. And we need to begin to focus on moving us from being ordinary to being extraordinary, from being average to unlocking the genius within us. Now, for the last 30 years, I've been a part of a community called TED. It stands for Technology, Entertainment, Design. And, and I, at first, I didn't even know about TED. It was long before the TED Talks. And one of my friends who is a genius came to me and said, you need to get into this community called TED. And I said, what is it? And he goes, it's, it's a place where the brightest minds of the world get together and talk about everything that's new. And so I, I, I looked into it, and you have to apply, they have to accept you, that you have to qualify. And so I applied for TED, and I sent in my best application, and they said no. And I was a little discouraged, because I hoped that they would let me in somehow, but I wasn't surprised that I didn't meet their standards. And, and, but I'm a writer, so I tried again a few months later, and I rewrote my story and tried to make it more interesting and tried to add a little more color, and, and I applied again, and they said no again. But that's Okay. I'm used to rejection because I used to date. And, and so I know there's a fine line between being persistent and becoming a stalker. And so I thought, I need to try one more time, but I need to be a little more strategic. And I am Latino. And so if you close the door, I will find a window. And, and so I knew there's a way in. And, and they did their first TED Global in Arusha, Tanzania. And I thought to myself, fewer people will apply for Africa. So I applied for TED to go to Arusha, Tanzania, and figured that if fewer people were my competition, that maybe I could actually be accepted, and it proved to be true. Third time was the charm. They invited me to TED. My wife said, well, now you're, you're accepted, but how are you going to get to Africa? And so I worked out a whole situation where I went to South Africa first, and then I went into Tanzania, but there was a sign in South Africa that said there was yellow fever in Tanzania. If you don't have a vaccination, you cannot go, and I didn't even know that yellow fever was a thing, and so I certainly wasn't vaccinated, and so I thought, well, I'll go. I'll figure that out later, and they said, if you go to Tanzania, you can't come back to South Africa. So that's next week's problem, so I just went ahead, went into Tanzania. They lost my luggage. I'm at TED. I'm really nervous. I have no clothes, and a friend of mine who's a fashion designer sent me some of his clothes, but his favorite style was saran wrap, and uh, and I don't really have the body for saran wrap, so I just basically had to wear the same thing every day. And, and I, I'm actually a social introvert. And the first day I have my cell phone, they take us on a bus to this lunch. I'm, I, I'm at TED, I'm at TED, I'm so excited, but I, I, I don't feel like I belong. I know they're going to discover I'm a poser. I don't really belong in the room, and I'm so nervous. And I'm on my phone, my kids say, Dad, don't go stand in a corner like you always do. Dad, go make eye contact, talk to people. And, and, uh, and my daughter, who I, I think really feels sorry for me, said, Dad, look for someone who needs a friend more than you. And, uh, and, and my son goes, Dad, make eye contact, which is tricky, because if it's not enough eye contact, nothing happens. If it's too much Bad things happen. And, and so I, I get in line to get food, and this woman gets in line, and she's the only person there that's older than me, I think. And, and I said, hi, I'm Erwin. She told me her name. And, and I said, this is my first head. And she said, this is her first head. And, and I said, do you have someone to have lunch with? She says, no. And 
And I said, would you like to eat together? She said, yes. I was so excited. Human contact. And, and we sat down at this round table, just me and her. And then eight other people or so joined, us, joined us right away. And they just listened to us as we talked for an hour. But have you ever talked to someone that no matter what you talk about, they talk about whatever they want to talk about? And, and so I tried to talk about a lot of things that, you know, to be interesting. And, and every time I would talk about something, whether it was politics or social systems or, or family dynamics or, or whatever it may be, she would always say, well, you know, chimpanzees are like that. I go, oh, that's interesting. And, and, and I would talk about political systems. You know, chimpanzees have political systems. I said, oh, that's interesting. And no matter what I talked about, she always went back to chimpanzees. And I had about five minutes of chimpanzee in me. And after an hour, I just didn't know what else to say. And then finally, I stopped and I said, Jane, can I ask you a question? She said, yes. And, and it occurred to me, there are only two women in the world named Jane who could know this much about chimpanzees. One of them is married to Tarzan, and I don't think this is her. So I looked at her and I said, are, are you Jane Goodall? She goes, oh, of course I am. I said, well, that explains the whole chimpanzee thing. And, and every single person I met was an expert on a species. Every one of them, it seemed like. And, and I had now been to like 20 TEDs, and I remember after about five, I said to my wife, I need a species. I can't go back without a species. Everyone has one. I don't have a species. And, and, and I realized... I've spent my entire life studying humans and almost all of my life being one. And, and I've always been fascinated by humans and always felt like an outsider inside of this species called humans. And, and I started asking the question, because when you're talking to people who march with the penguins and travel with killer whales and they spend their entire life studying the value of a particular insect or, or, or flower, and, and yet I never heard anyone talk about why humans were important. In fact, overwhelmingly, it felt as if humans were the one species on this planet that really shouldn't be here. We were destroying everything. We were intrusive into nature. And, and so I started asking the question, what is it that makes humans unique from every other species? What, what, what would be the reflection of the image of God? Because the more you learn about species, the more you realize we have similarities. I mean, there are species that... that that feel and species that think and species that organize and, and, and species that, that reflect human characteristics all around us. I mean, if, if you have dogs, you know that the dogs can be loyal and loving and, and caring just like humans. If you have cats, you know that cats can be indifferent, uncaring, and narcissistic just like humans. And, and so you, you see a lot of human characteristics in different species. So I thought, what is it that makes humans different than every other species? And what I began to realize is that human beings have this unique capacity to materialize the invisible. That no other species can do this. See, human beings can actually take an idea and actually translate it into reality. Everything in the space that I'm in, the, the equipment around me, the lights, the table, the iPad, the, the, the cameras, the microphones, all of these things first existed in someone's imagination, and then were translated into reality. And it's interesting because the, the, the phrase echnelio was just used a few moments ago in, in the artistic expression, out of nothing. But actually, there's a nuance. See, the Bible doesn't say that God created out of nothing. What the Bible actually says in Hebrews 11, verse 3, is that everything that is seen was made out of that which is unseen. So there's a difference between something that is invisible and something that is nothing. See, the oxygen in this room is invisible, but it's not nothing. If it was nothing, we would know. We would all die. 
We would suffocate because there would be nothing to inhale. But the fact that we're breathing is proof that the invisible is essential. And when the Bible says that God created everything that is visible out of that which is invisible, what's the invisible material from which God created? The invisible material from which God created was the imagination of God. See, creation is an expression of the genius of God. And when God expresses his genius, beauty happens. When God creates, it becomes beautiful and good and true because he is beautiful and good and true. And the beautiful thing about being human, being created in the image and likeness of God, is that you have the same characteristic. You can materialize out of the invisible and translate it into the visible. And that is the work of genius. So I started wondering myself, just on a little side note, are we a shadow of ourselves? Is humanity everything God imagined? Or are we somehow a lesser version of the ideal? I was looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, an early description of humanity. It says in verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there's no suitable helper to be found. Now, I know that the actual intention of this narrative is to let us know that God was preparing Adam for Eve. He was preparing man for woman. He was letting him know that there was something missing in the relational scheme of how God designed him. And so I could almost imagine God bringing everything to Adam in twos, two elephants and two giraffes and two lions and two tigers and two peacocks and, and one human. Two raccoons and two beavers and two gophers and two badgers and one human. It's almost as if God's trying to help Adam see that there's something yet to be created that would bring him fulfillment he could not even imagine. But in the interim, something really unusual happens. God brings to the man all the animals in the world. And he tells them, you are to name them. Now, I imagine that God could have named them. In fact, I think God is probably more creative than Adam, and could have come up with names easier, but God wanted to pass on this creative endeavor to him. Now think about this just for a moment. Adam was so creative, he never ran out of names for every animal. I mean, if it, if it were me, I, I think I would start struggling after a while. I mean, I could be super creative at first. Rhinoceros, hippopotamus, platypus. But after a thousand animals, I'm going, rat, bat, Cat, it's just, it's, it's just sort of running out of creative expressions. Not giraffe anymore. Just bird. But he never ran out of creative juice. And on top of that, he could remember every name he gave. I, I don't know how you do that. I, it, I would go, oh, okay, ostrich. And then 100 animals later, I'd go, ostrich. Go, no, you already used that one. He didn't even have a laptop. He was able to remember the name of every single animal and be creative enough to name every single animal something different. Now, what's interesting about the human brain is the human brain is essentially lazy. Your brain wants to know how little it needs to do for you to survive. 
And once you convince it, your brain that you don't have to think much, it won't think much. I have a, a cell phone now that I lose. But in my cell phone is my mind. Well, at least what well, used to be my mind. See, in my cell phone is every phone number I need. The only phone number I know now is mine. And I know mine because I have to use it when I'm logging into an app. But I don't know my wife's phone number. And I've been married almost 40 years. I don't know my son's phone number or my daughter's phone number. I don't know anyone's phone number. If, if I was in an accident and they said to me, who can we call? And I would say, grab my cell phone. Go to my favorites. They said, your cell phone's broken. I would say, I'm alone in the world. I know no one. Because I have no memory of anyone else in my life. But there was a time, in fact, I remember doing this in college just for fun. I was invited to a room, there was like 75 people. And I, and I, and, and I said, hey, I'm going to do a little experiment with you. And so I had everyone in the room give me their first name and remember where they were seated. Then I had everyone leave the room and I brought them back in, told them all their name and put them exactly where they were seated. Because I have a function of an eidetic memory and so I can remember every single person and remember all their names. And I used to use this all the time. It was fun. It's gone because I have a phone now. If I want to remember something, I just take a photograph of it. I go to a parking lot, I can't remember where I put my car, so I take a photograph of where it's in the parking lot. And the more I tell my brain, I don't need you anymore, the more my brain says, I'm so relieved. Is it possible that somewhere along the way, you were told, even if you're a person of faith, what God wants from you is standardization? What God wants for you is just not create any problems. What God wants from you is not to cause any, any crisis. What God wants from you is to be average and ordinary. What God wants from you is to fit in. God wants you to be like everyone else. Isn't that what discipleship is? To squeeze the uniqueness out of you to make you just like everyone else. That's what we've been convinced of. What if your uniqueness was actually slowly extricated out of your soul because you were told to be like Jesus is to be like everyone else? And that's never what God intended. That what Jesus came to do was to place in you the mind of Christ to give you a higher mind, to transform you by the renewing of your mind so that you would actually have not only your own genius once again awakened, but the genius of Jesus available to you. How would that change your life if you could wake up every day knowing, I can see the world, not just through God's eyes, but I can see the world through the mind of Christ. I can see the world through the genius of the God who created all things that are good and true and beautiful. So the facts are against me. I travel the world and I'm in rooms with people everywhere who have been convinced that they're average and ordinary, that there's nothing unique, nothing special in them. Conversation after conversation after conversation with people who have become convinced that, that somehow God was less generous with them. 
And all they can do all their life is envy someone else's life or long for someone else's talent or, 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 or try to pretend to be someone they're not. But I want you to know that if you are breathing right now, there is genius in you. And it may take some work. It may take some courage. It may take some discipline. It may take some time. But that genius is not lost. It is just dormant. It's just hidden under the rubble of your failures and under the rubble of your fears and under the rubble of your shame and under the rubble of your mediocrity. And what God wants to do is disrupt everything within you and unlock that genius so that you can be his gift to the world. As long as you're talking about the journey from being bad to good, you're really dealing with the world of minimums. You're just trying to raise the minimum standard of what faith looks like. It's time that we actually start raising the roof and expecting that each person who has a life-changing encounter with Jesus begins to have an expanded universe within their soul to be able to see a future that does not exist, to see a person that they are not yet, to see a life they could have never imagined, but now it's all they can see. There's this interesting phenomenon that has always been a curiosity to me. It's called phantom pain. It's, it's what soldiers experience when they come back from war and they've lost a limb and you lose a leg and for years and years and years you feel the, the pain as if that leg was still there, and, and it's called phantom pain. And for phantom pain to happen, you have to have lost something that was yours. I think human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. See, we talk about a world without violence, a world without racism, a world with peace, a world where, where each person respects each other and treats each other with dignity. We talk about a world with gracism and, and no racism. But that's not a world we've ever known. See, when we talk about a world where everyone respects each other, we've never known a world like that. So when we talk about a world with, without slavery, we've never known a world like that. When we talk about a world where there is no war and no violence, we have never known a world like that. And so when we talk about these ideals, you need to realize that we have never, not ever in human history, experienced the reality of these ideals as a species. So where do these ideals come from? See, I, and when people say, I just can't believe in God because there's no proof of him, then how do you believe in peace? See, how do you believe in a world where there is no poverty? How can you believe in a world where no child is abandoned and orphaned? How in the world can you believe in a world where no one is homeless? It's because you have the phantom pain of your soul. Your soul knows that somehow your humanity has been lost. And you can't explain it. You feel the loss of that. And that's why so many times when we're living a life other people might think is ideal or aspirational. We wake, at the, wake up in the morning, we're so depressed. Why people who are successful struggle with suicidal thoughts. Why beautiful 22-year-olds who have their entire lives ahead of them can't think of one more reason to live and end their lives. It, it's, it's why we're over-medicated and 
over-anxious, why we are having panic attacks and, and we're paralyzed by stress. It's because our souls know that we were created for more. And that phantom pain of your soul is the best proof of God. That you're created in the image and likeness of God. And as long as your life doesn't reflect that image, you experience the phantom pain of being less than human. Which, by the way, is such a curious thing that we would talk about things that are inhuman. See, we, we know somehow there's something out of sync. When a killer whale eats a seal, we don't think of it being inanimal. When a Bengal tiger chases a gazelle and eats it as it's still fighting for its life, we don't think that's evil. We just think that's nature. And yet when one human being chooses to act out their violence on another human being, we know it's inhuman. It's inhumane. We somehow know that humans are not measured by the same measure as nature. That we're not like creation. We are more like the creator. There's genius inside of you. And that genius is waiting to be awakened. But more than that, I just want to bring it down to the simple reality. The genius of Jesus was to make us human again. It's so simple, it's profound. It's so extraordinary that it was too easily overlooked. The reason the genius of Jesus has been ignored and overlooked for centuries is that every act of genius needs a canvas. So you see Picasso's art on a canvas and you see Bobby Fischer's genius on a chessboard. You hear Mozart's genius on the notes on a piano. But where do you see the genius of Jesus materialized? The genius of Jesus can only be seen on the canvas of the human soul. It's you that is the work of art of the greatest genius who ever lived. It's you where Jesus expresses his genius most and best. It's you that becomes the proof of the genius of Jesus when you begin to live the life that God created you to live. May that genius be awakened in you. God bless you. Pastor David. Wow. Man, is your head spinning? Is your heart pumping? Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Irwin McManus. Just write in the chat how much you appreciate this word because it was just imparted to you. Um, do you remember my phone number? I've never yeah. known your phone yeah, number. Yeah, okay, guys. My name? Doctor. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, you know, uh, let me ask you one question and we'll get off, off the stage. But you mentioned the standardization and how kids might have this genius when they're younger. By the time they go through an education system and a life system, it kind of squeezes it out of them. And so is coming into Jesus a way of recapturing that which is dormant under it? Or could we say, let's change the way we even raise our children so it's not squeezed out so early? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think parenting is huge, but uh, education has almost a greater influence because of the 
the pressure of peer relationships and, and the authority of teachers. All of our institutions are created for conformity. Our political institutions, our religious institutions, our educational institutions, they're not created to unlock imagination and creativity. And the, I think the great problem is that your child will be measured by how well it does conforming to everyone else's standard and will actually be taken off if they're actually inventive and creative. And so, so as long as they're standardized and put out the input that other people want them to conform to, they can get great grades yep. and ascend. But if they're unique, different, or don't conform, then what do we do with them? Yeah, I was a straight D student, first through 12th grade. I was in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 12 years old. Hmm. I was even told I was retarded. Hmm. And I thought that I failed the educational system, but the educational system failed me. Hmm. And because I couldn't do the things that were easy for people, they couldn't see that a lot of the things they couldn't do were easy for me. Don't underestimate the uniqueness and gifting of your child. Your child doesn't need to be good at everything. It needs to be, they need to be good at what God created them to be good at. Mm, wow, that's yeah. amazing, that's amazing. It's almost somewhat of an endorsement of the Montessori model that kind of is working with the kids' genius before they start getting into a more standardized model. Yeah, in sixth grade, I took my son out of um, elementary school and um, I said, you're gonna travel with me. We traveled the world. He went to over 30 countries before he was probably 16. And when I took him back to a, like a Montessori school um, and had him tested at the end of sixth grade, he had a college level reading capacity wow. and with a, um, a language capacity. And they, they brought me and they said, how did you accomplish this with your son? And I said, I took him out of school. <laughs> And uh, we went to the bookstores. I said, hey, look, I didn't grow up in faith, but I'm going to let you read what I read. I gave him Catcher in the Rye when he was 12 years old. I didn't know it was a high school book with an immense amount of profanity. But um, I, I had him read it on the plane, and my son was reading college-level stuff at the age of 12. Didn't know it was beyond him yeah. because it wasn't beyond him. And we went to Tokyo, Japan, and took him to the Shinto temple. I started teaching him about Buddhism, uh, Shintoism. I started teaching him about world religions and cultures. And that began to infuse in his life at a very, very early age. Same with my daughter. Uh, my daughter has a high school degree, and uh, she's an incredibly successful artist that's traveled the world and writes music that is sung across the planet. And, but I saw when she was around four years old, she had perfect pitch. And so I, at the age of four or so, every night I would write music with her. And by the time she was five years old, I recorded the song that she wrote with her singing on it so that she would think it was normal to be a recording artist. And I brought all the instruments into her house and just said, anybody who wants to learn, I would bring teachers in and they learned whatever instruments they wanted. I didn't know what they would be. I just knew I wanted the whole world available to them yeah. and then find out what they really love, what they move toward. And then we just did that. That is amazing. And you know, the whole yeah. world is available to all of us and available to you. So maybe today you take this message and say, God, unlock what is in me. There may be things in me and ideas and imagination and invisibility in me that I want to see come into the visible material realm. And I pray that this word from this man of the hour bless your soul today. Thanks for listening to the Bridgeway Community Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Bridgeway, visit our website at bridgeway.cc. To watch all of our sermons, visit our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe while you're there. If you'd like to download sermon notes, just click the link in the description. 
If you'd like to take part in our 30th anniversary challenge, go to bridgeway.cc 30. That's bridgeway.cc T-H-I-R-T-Y. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.